to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Rory Cormack. Rory is a professor of international relations at the University of Nottingham. Rory focuses in his work on secret intelligence and covert action. Rory has written a bunch of books on these issues. Today, we're discussing Rory's latest book that just came out recently called a somewhat provocative title, How to Stage a Coup and 10 Other Lessons from the World of Secret Statecraft. And I'll, of course, put a link to the book in the show notes. This book is a very fast-paced, informative and highly engaging work that very nicely navigates the line between top-quality storytelling with a ton of interesting real-world examples on the one hand and on the other hand, giving the reader key principles, key concepts as takeaways after you've read the book. So I look forward to having a chat about the book today. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Jessica. Nice to uh, nice to be here. And, and um, that's exactly what we were going for with the book. I just I only hope that if the title is not too provocative, I don't want to end up on, on, on any dodgy lists. For the benefit of, uh, of listeners, it is not a advocating coups or indeed um, a how-to guide to do these dodgy things um, but yes it was a pleasure a pleasure writing it i enjoyed it that's right i mean plenty examples of failures as well so that you know <laughs> readers don't think it's too easy i'm wondering first of all i mean it is an interesting book in that regard and the way that you've framed it and the way that you've sort of divided it into different types of covert activity so, like, what actually motivated you to write this book? I just find it so interesting. We live in a world where over the last, what, four or five years, this type of activity has been all over headlines internationally, whether it is Russian attempts to poison dissidents, uh, North Korean attempts to poison dissidents, Saudi assassinations of dissidents, whether it is electoral interference, like we saw with Russia and the Americans back in 2016, um, so-called hybrid warfare, grey zone warfare, all of this. It's all around us. Propaganda, disinformation. It feels like these issues are some of the most important in contemporary international, international relations. And I've been thinking about writing about secret statecraft, covert action for, for quite some time. And I just want to do two things, really. One, offer an explainer. To people about what what is this stuff that goes on how how new is it do we need to be worried about it what's what's the story and secondly i wanted to explore some of this out of my own interest there's some really i think fascinating puzzles here such as given that we're all talking about it how can it be covert action how can it be mm. secret and i find that a really interesting paradox does that mean it's all failed because we're talking about it and the answer is no so therefore what on earth is going on here and that's one of the big questions that I try and address in the book is about the, the role of secrecy in modern politics. That's so interesting and kind of brings me to a question about, you know, we hear so much about covert activity and all of these issue areas, as you've just mentioned, but we oftentimes don't really know exactly what it is. So how would you define covert action? I define it as attempts to 
meddle, to interfere, to shape development in the affairs of others, crucially in a deniable or unacknowledged manner. And that's the, the crux of it, because the outcomes are visible. There's a coup, there's an electoral regime change, uh, there's a secret war on a, on a very far end of the, of the scale, there's, a, there's an assassination. But where the covertness comes in is about the identity of the sponsor. But I think at the same time, we can overplay that idea of plausible deniability. You know, exposure doesn't necessarily mean failure because often states will deny this stuff, but it's still clusters as covert action, it's still classed as reasonably successful sometimes. So I, I suppose part of the definition, I think, would play up this idea of unacknowledged intervention. It's times when states interfere in the affairs of others in an unacknowledged manner. And that, for me anyway, is, is the key. Yeah, that makes sense. And I can certainly think of times where it's kind of like everyone knows, but no one's stating explicitly that a certain state is interfering in another state's activity, but it's kind of like the known, <laughs> unknown. Yeah. Well, take um, one of the most famous examples of the American covert action in Afghanistan during the 1980s. So famous, it's been immortalised in the Hollywood movie, Charlie Orson's War. So famous, it's got its own uh, entry in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most expensive covert action of all time. But it wasn't, it wasn't remotely plausibly deniable, particularly as it, as it dragged on. It started off reasonably discreet, but as it dragged on, it wasn't remotely plausibly deniable. As the Americans are transferring in indirectly Stinger missiles to shoot down Soviet helicopters, there's very little deniability there. But it's regarded as a, an example of successful covert action. Why? And the answer is, well, it's less about the exposure and more about the fact that America didn't officially acknowledge it. And we can see similar things today with the Russians. Like we know that they're doing it, but denials are utterly implausible, but they're not acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was also thinking of Russia's incursions into Ukraine post-2014, where there, it was more under that general banner of we're trying to make sure we have some kind of plausible deniability or maybe even not that plausible deniability, but the deniability is still there. Another domain of covert action that's very fascinating and that we hear about a lot is the whole domain of information warfare. And you have quite a few chapters that address different aspects of information warfare in the book. But I feel like it's another domain where whilst we use the term, we don't necessarily understand what we're really talking about in terms of the practices and the mechanisms, what's really going on when states are engaging, state actors are engaging, or maybe it's civil society actors, et cetera, are engaging in the production of disinformation or what we might call fake news. But can you give us a bit more of a flavour of what are we actually talking about? It's the most widespread form of, of covert interference, of covert action. And it doesn't generate the, quite as many headlines, I suppose, as the more famous regime change attempts and assassination attempts. But this is, this is the bulk of it by, by a long shot. And it's difficult to define because, well, a lot of the words are normative connotation. I mean, propaganda, for example, has become very much a dirty word. So then we talk about information operations. You mentioned disinformation, um, which is the, the word of the day, I suppose. But even then, what do we mean by that? Because the standard definition of disinformation of course, is intending to deceive uh, audiences. But how do we know 
there's intent to deceive. So it's very, very difficult to actually define it, which also makes it very difficult to defend against it when we disagree over what constitutes disinformation, what constitutes an agent of influence. But the kind of activities we're talking about here are attempts to shape people's opinions and then to guide their behaviours and their actions. And this takes place through multiple means and channels, such as spreading forgeries, which we associate with the Cold War, but we know there are examples of Russia doing so more recently, includes use of social media, which has really been weaponized by, by many states, including things like inauthentic networks, uh, bots, all this sort of thing. And then as, as that becomes more, we become more used to that and better at defending against those inauthentic networks who amplify certain messages. We now see states amplifying genuine users and, and bringing ideas that were once on the what that are on the margins and trying to give them more more voice because that's more difficult to defend against because they're they're real people who are just being amplified by hostile actors and propaganda is about using fake sources to spread a message you, know, you might be familiar with the idea of black and gray propaganda which is about the source so black propaganda is a fake source which can be used to spread truths and Britain has a long track record of creating fake sources to spread truths, whereas states can also spread outright lies. Now, it's much more difficult to, to spread lies. In Britain and NATO and the US and Australia consistently said, we, we don't spread lies, not just because it's you know, not the right thing to do. It also, it doesn't work. They get discredited way too quickly. So it makes much more sense to spread accurate information. But states do it in a way uh, in which the, the source becomes more credible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And it also makes me think about how, you know, you can put out certain information, but that's not the same thing as that information gaining traction. So whether you're putting out a truth using fake sources or whether you're putting out something that's actually not true to begin with, I guess there's also the way that that resonates within a societal context what are the conditions within a societal context that are important for those information operations to gain traction or to be more successful? There's got to be something there already. There's got to be, there's got to be something which the propaganda, the, the narrative can latch onto. Because if you are you know, spreading an outright lie that nobody believes, then it's not going to gain any traction whatsoever. It has to be a believable lie, at least amongst a certain subset of the target population. For example, you know, one of the most famous uh, black propaganda disinformation operations of the 20th century was the, the Soviet Union's AIDS lie, that the AIDS virus was created in some sort of biological warfare lab in the US. Now that is a complete and utter fabrication, but it was believable amongst certain audiences therefore it gains um, gain traction even though it wasn't true so it has to be has to be believable and then a second thing I would add is the, the society needs to be divided there has to be some sort of schism some sort of fault line mm -hmm. and what propaganda does is it finds that and it smashes it wide open it polarizes these, these different positions, whether that is over immigration, whether it's over religion, economy. And it's the same, similar things that we see right now as, as in the Cold War. We, we look back at declassified archives and they're talking about exploiting tensions between 
Soviets and Islam, for example, religious fault lines, is still hot topics today. So you have to, it has to be believable and it has to exploit an existing rift. All of these covert actions, they don't come out of nowhere. If you're trying to do a regime change, for example, you need to have an opposition already there. You can't just create something and expect them to, to work. If you're sponsoring rebels, they have to already be there to be credible. And it's no different with, with propaganda. These ideas, people to spread these ideas have to already be there. And the job of the propagandist is to work out who these people are, what they believe, what the fault lines are, what's going to get traction and what the best way of framing a particular narrative is to make sure it gets as much traction as possible. And that's as true now as it was in the height of the Cold War. It makes me think that one way to combat those operations, if we were wanting to respond to them, is to actually ensure that groups interact across the polarised societal divides and that there's actually that sort of humanization in some ways of the other group, like those information operations also seem to rely on those schisms being such that there isn't really contact between those groups that are polarized within a society. That's it. And I worry about going to too gung-ho and labeling all this stuff around today as, as Russian disinformation. It may, it may well be, but it's difficult to, to prove and it does nothing to address the toxic discourse i think this government should be quite careful about how they expose this stuff the language they use to expose this stuff another danger of exposing it too too heavily without proper thought is you end up making the russians look more powerful than they actually are if you start saying everything is a russian disinformation operation or you're you know you're pointing pointing them out then we might start to think that they're actually everywhere that, that the russians are behind every gooseberry bush so how then do we do we counter it? I think we, it needs to be exposed, but in a in a very carefully calibrated manner. But then I would I totally agree with you. We need to reduce those fault lines. We need to reduce those schisms. We need to talk to each other. We need to uh, invest in education and critical thinking. So this is a long term problem, and I think short term fixes around you know banning people or labeling disinformation left right and center I, I i worry it's myopic and it will be counterproductive because it will just increase those schisms which are there to be exploited and one of the arguments in the book is disinformation covert action is is very real and it is a real threat but the best way to defend about it is to get our own houses in order we need to address the, the toxicity uh, because that's what's being exploited by those who seek to do us harm Mm -hmm. Otherwise, ironically, the response just exacerbates the, the fractures. I guess I also have to ask you about the promise of the book's title, which is How to Stage a Coup. I mean, I assume you've never actually carried out a coup yourself, but what from your research are the necessary conditions or the conditions under which a successful coup is going to be more likely? I can confirm I have never carried out a coup and for, uh, for legal purposes, I never intend to carry out a coup. But my book's interested in, in foreign sponsored coups. I mean, there, there, are, there are so many coups which uh, take place internally. I'm interested in when a, a state tries to engineer one uh, using its intelligence services. And what, what you would need to do so is, first of all, the target need, has to have a, a machinery that can carry on the day after the coup as if not much has changed. 
We're not talking about violent revolutions here. It's about changing a leader and then the bureaucracy has to be in that sweet spot. It has to be enough of a bureaucracy that isn't tied too closely to the leader, as in his or her family and cousins, but without being too professional to realise that something (laughs) terrible has happened. You need to have, if he's sponsoring it externally, you need to have an accomplice. You need to have someone inside who's willing to take external money from the the CIA from the FSB, whoever, which is, isn't isn't a given because, yes, that person might end up as president, but you know, if it comes out, they'll never be, ever be known as a, as a stooge. And as we discussed earlier, it's very difficult to keep these things properly, properly secret. You need to have a broadly apathetic population. If you don't necessarily believe in the ideology of the leader, if this leader is a dictator who, shall we say, rests on the cult of the personality, then that might be riper to overthrow via a coup than somebody who is that head of a party which espouses a particular ideology that the, the general population has, has bought into. And then finally, I think I would say that power needs to be centralised. If there are big centres of power all over the, a vast territory, it becomes quite difficult then to do a coup in the centre and to have that legitimacy to extend across the the entire country so the target's got to be right but you also need a a replacement Uh, you need to have centralized power an apathetic population and preferably a cult of the personality so you strip that personality away and it all falls down rather than this big bigger ideal in which the entire population believes Mm-hmm. I will finally ask you an impossible and entirely speculative question, which is, we've sort of heard some talk of, well, will there be a coup in Russia, which I actually personally don't think seems that likely. But regardless, how likely, based on all of that, do you think it would be that there might be some kind of coup or regime change in Russia in coming years? Who knows? Is the honest, is the honest answer. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm no specialist in internal Russian politics. What I would say is if we're looking at it as a as a covert action, as something externally sponsored, who's going to do that? And I can't see anybody wanting to, but being able to mount such an extensive operation against such a significant target right now. You look at the coups of the Cold War, they were never against Moscow. You know, they were against normally post-imperial countries. So I think it would be incredibly unlikely for another state to have the, the ability to do this against such a significant power. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Thanks so much, Rory. I appreciate you being with us today. And I recommend that listeners get your book. There's a lot more in there that, of course, we couldn't get to. But thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode. Mm-hmm.